Amen. Welcome again to Grace. My name is Caleb Brazier, the campus pastor here at Grace Claremont. Grace Church exists as one church in many different communities around Central Florida. Uh, so we have a number of campuses worshiping all at the same time here. One of the things unique to Grace is each of our campuses have live preaching. So the campus pastor uh, is here preaching every week. Sometimes we'll rotate around and do the campus pastor shuffle. It's like the Cupid shuffle, but more gospel-centered. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but I'm the campus pastor here. We're the newest campus here at Grace. We started back in January. Um, so we're coming up on our year anniversary. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. So another thing that marks Grace is we are Bible teachers, Bible preachers. We are expository preachers. What that means is just most of the time we're walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. So we've been inching our way through the Gospel of John. Um, we'll jump back into that in January, but we've taken a break for three weeks uh, here in this Advent season uh, to kind of switch things up a little bit uh, as we prepare our hearts then for Christmas. Um, and we have been looking, uh, last week we started, we're looking at a different Christmas carol each week. These songs that are familiar to us, that we, we've sung, uh, and wanting to look at them with fresh eyes to see why are we singing them? What are they saying? What, what should we feel as we sing them? And more importantly, what biblical truth do they reflect? And so what we're doing is taking each of these carols and using them almost as windows into a biblical text to see what does this give us uh, insight into. And so the phrase, the sentence that I mentioned last week uh, that we're going to be unpacking throughout this entire series, uh, and we're going to have it actually up on the screen, I think, is um, that every Christian should be awaiting and longing for the return of our King and the restoration of all things. Every Christian should be awaiting and longing for the return of our King and the restoration of all things. Is this true for us? And this is what we want to press into over these three weeks. And last week, we looked kind of at that aspect of what it means to be awaiting. Uh, as we looked at come now long expected Jesus and how there's this sense of excitement as we look forward to Jesus returning. We should be anticipating it, exciting, like a boy on Christmas morning when he wakes up and he runs out into the hall and the smell of cinnamon rolls is wafting through the air and he runs out and he sees presents everywhere. He's excited. Has Santa come yet? In a similar way, but to a much greater extent, we should be longing for, expecting, exciting for the return of our Savior. Waking up every morning, going... Has he come yet? Is he here? Because what he was bringing is far greater than anything that Santa Claus could have brought. And so we looked at that idea of awaiting, that every Christian should be awaiting. This week, I want us to press into this idea of longing for the return of our king. It's a little bit different. What I mean by awaiting and longing is the difference kind of being awaiting, being more of this excited, um, uh, anticipatory, looking forward to, longing, feeling more like a, a groaning, a yearning. Uh, this kind of an angst that you feel. Uh, because uh, as we enter into this Christmas season, I don't know what your Christmas traditions are. One of ours in the Brazier household is to go through a Rolodex of Christmas movies. So we just slowly make our way through it. The ones we've gone through so far, Jingle All the Way, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and just a great actor of our generation. Um, <laughs> Jingle All the Way, I'll Be Home for Christmas, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, the hero of the 90s, JTT, uh, Christmas with the Cranks, the Santa Claus, a couple of Tim Allen classics, 12 Dates of Christmas, uh, The Grinch, and the, the newest one for us is The Christmas Prince. It's the new Netflix Christmas movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's terrible, um, <laughs> but it is also incredible. So they are, if, if you've seen any of the Hallmark Christmas movies, Netflix just took that and just upped the game, just like... 
cheesy, expected. There was a couple moments like I said the words that the actor said, knowing like I know exactly what's coming. But there's something about it. Lee and I both, we just love it. We just sit and we'll watch these and it's ridiculous. Like this plot is this journalist who goes to some country to cover um, this royal family and the prince doesn't want to sit on the throne. Well, they end up falling in love after a week. Big surprise. And will they get proposed? Who knows? Will they get engaged? There's no telling. You'll have to watch and see. But anyway, the Christmas Prince, it's terrible. Um, and we've got a few more coming up. We've got Elf, Elf on the Way, Home Alone 2, Die Hard, which is a Christmas movie, by the way. Um, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the old classic claymation. Kind of terrifying movie, right? It's kind of, there's something creepy about it that you can't really explain. You just watch it and you enjoy it, but also at the same time terrified a little bit. Um, and you have these claymation dolls running around. The abominable snowman comes out. He's frightening and, and whatnot. But it, we, we are, we love, we love Christmas movies. And Rudolph in particular, I was thinking about it. And there's that one scene where Rudolph and his two friends, they go to this island. And it's the Island of Misfit Toys. And they run into this jack-in-the-box that pops up, and he's like the sentry. He's the guard for the island. Um, and they can't figure out what this place is, and he explains them. This is an island of misfit toys. Everything that's broken or messed up that kids don't want, they all come to this island. And they're like, well, what's wrong with you? What kid doesn't love a jack-in-the-box? And the thing starts crying. He's like, well, my name's Charlie. That's the problem. I'm a Charlie in the box. And no kid wants to play with a Charlie in the box. And I'm like really, Charlie, like, just change your name, like, go to the local, like, government, whatever, just become a jack-in-the-box, and you're fine. These other toys have real problems. You just got, just change your name. Anyway, that's enough of that, um, and so they go, and they meet these toys, and there are these, all these toys that are broken. There's a spotted elephant. There's a choo-choo with square wheels on his caboose. There's a water pistol which shoots jelly, but even that, I'm like, listen, I made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich this past week, and it's so hard to get that knife and try to get the right amount of jelly. It's all stuck together. I was like, I would kill for a water pistol that shoots jelly. That would be so convenient. Just slap the peanut butter on and just a couple squirts, and you're good to go. Anyway, Welch's should trademark that. Uh, there's a bird that doesn't fly but swims. There's a cowboy who rides an ostrich. And finally, there's a boat that can't stay afloat. And they're all there together, and they start singing the song, being the island of misfit toys in this place where they are not working as they were originally created for. They're not operating in the way in which they were designed. There's something that's broken. And they're coming together, and they're singing this song, and they're hoping for a day when someone would come to the island and fix what's broken. And listen, as I thought about that, the reality is, is that for us in this room, we're not very different from that island of misfit toys. We may not be shooting jelly uh, out of a water pistol, but we all feel the brokenness of this world. We all feel that there's just something off, that we're not operating under the way which we were designed and created to. And there's something in us that's longing for, that's groaning even, we'll use that word a lot today, for someone to come back and fix it. And that's what we'll be looking at today as we look at this hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's an old hymn uh, written and translated a um, long, long time ago. There's a great article that Ben Bailey, the campus pastor at Lake Nona, wrote on the history of it. Go and read it. It's fascinating. But in it, you can feel this sense of longing, this sense of groaning that's wanting, aching for something, someone to come and rescue, someone to come and redeem, someone to come and fix. As we look around, we feel the brokenness of this world. I mean, all you have to do is just go and turn on the news, and you see it. There's fires raging in California. 
There's unrest in Israel. There's sexual misconduct in Hollywood and in politics. You just turn on the local news and you see it. You hear the stories of what's happening at Lake Mineola in the last few weeks and your heart just breaks and there's something in you that wants to pray and long for someone to come and fix it. We feel the brokenness at a high school that's less than a mile from here. But most of us, we don't even need to turn on the TV to know that something's broken. We've seen it with our own eyes. Words like depression, heart attack, cancer have made their way into our vocabulary and they've made their way into our lives. No one has to tell us it's broken. We felt the pain ourselves. And for many of us, holidays aren't as exciting as the boy who runs out with cinnamon rolls and presents to go and see what Santa brought him. But often the holidays can be a painful reminder of what we've lost and what's broken and what we long to be changed. So how are we supposed to deal with that very real kind of sorrow? What are we supposed to do as Christians? How do we think about this? Are you supposed to listen to Z88.3, slap on a smile and say, you know what, it's all going to be okay? No. That's not what we're supposed to do. That's not what God has told us to do. God has given us a very real explanation about our situation. And He's given us a very real hope about our future that gives us a very real peace in our lives today. We're not home yet. We're actually exiles. This is a more biblical example than the island of misfit toys. But the language that the Bible uses says that we're exiles. We're strangers on this world. That we're not home. We're on our way there, but we're currently in exile. A lot like first century Israelites. As they were away from their home, under foreign oppression, longing for their Messiah to return, take his rightful place as king, and bring them back home. That's what they were longing for. And you hear that in the first verse of this hymn. O come, O come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. That was the longing as they were in exile, praying and yearning and groaning for the Messiah to come and bring them home. And friends, we are just like that. We are away from our home. We are sitting here in exile, longing for the return of our Messiah to come and bring us home. We are just like the first century Jews. As we sing this song, we can feel the longing in the lyrics themselves. Right? The, the song doesn't go, come, come, Emmanuel. Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. In the O's, you feel the, the author as they wrote it. There's this sense of groaning. But even in the song itself, the song is one of the few Christmas carols that's written in a minor key. So I don't know much about music, and you may not either, but just quick lesson, there's minor and there's major keys. So lyrics tell us something about what we should think. The melody tells us whether or not we'll like the song. The key tells us how to feel about the song. So you can't even really put your, your finger on it. But as you hear a song in a major key, it feels triumphant and happy and joyful. When you hear it in a minor key, you can feel, it just feels sad. It feels weighty. There's a great example of this on YouTube. There's a guy who sang the Moana theme song in a minor key. And you hear it, and it sounds, it takes this great, you know, the music's the same, the lyrics are the same, but he changes the key, and it sounds like a villain song all of a sudden, like a come to realization of like all that I'm going to be as a villain, and they sing it, I'll post it on Facebook later. It's a great example of this. But there aren't many Christmas songs written in minor keys. And most of them are about the excitement and the joy that we have. Joy to the world, hark the herald angels sing. They're joyful, they're triumphant, they're victorious, and they should be. 
But this song and a few others are written in minor keys. They help us to feel the weight of this. You can feel the longing in the song itself, the aching, the yearning, and the groaning. You see, we as Christians today, we live between whenever Christ has already come once and he has not yet come again. We live in between these two arrivals, these two comings, these two advents of Jesus. In this weird space, whatever the kingdom of God has been ushered in but not yet fully realized. And we live in this time, this already and not yet. And that phrase, I want to give you that phrase today to hold on to as an understanding and an expression about how we live in the world today. In this already but not yet. Because the Christian life is spent going back and forth between these two realities. The joyful assurance of the already that we've been redeemed and adopted. That God's wrath has been removed and our future is secured. We go from that to the painful sorrow of the not yet. The reality that death still snatches, that hurricanes still swirl, and that Satan still roams. And I think it's healthy if we sing songs that put words to both realities. The triumph we have in the already and the groaning that we have in the not yet. I think it's healthy because that's the way the Psalms are. The church's original hymn book One of the things I love about the Psalms is no matter what emotion you brought in here with you today, you can find it in the Psalms. Whether it's joy or triumph or victory or hope, it's there. But if it's sorrow and pain and doubts about even if God is there, how long he will wait, depression, you'll find words for how you feel there as well. The Bible is remarkably honest about the human condition. And it gives us words whenever we feel the pain of this already and not yet. And so we want to sing songs that are both triumphant and groaning, praising God in both of them. So in that sense, kind of with that theme, this idea of yearning, longing, and groaning, we want to use that as a window then into Romans 8, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them or turn them on, whatever your preference may be. We'll be in Romans 8, verses 12 through 25 this morning. Romans 8, verses 12 through 25. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller ones. It's going to be on page 808 and 809 uh, if you grab one of the Bibles there next to you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. Romans 8, verses 12 through 25. Paul is right in the middle of his letter to the church in Rome. And this is what some people call the Mount Everest of the New Testament, Romans 8. So we're kind of jumping right into the middle of this hike up the summit. Um, And Paul is writing about what it means to live life in the Spirit in verse 12. Paul writes and says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. So as Paul writes here, maybe you heard some of that language of already and not yet. And those are going to be the two kind of sections we'll look at today, the already in verses 12 through 17, and then the not yet in verses 18 through 25, the already and the not yet. We'll spend most of our time on the not yet, but already in verses 12 through 17, Paul reflects on the reality of the promises that we have accomplished in Christ, things that are done and are not going to be shaken. You'll notice, listen to his language in verses 14, 15, and 16. He says that we are sons of God. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons in verse 16, that we are children of God. Those things aren't conditional. They're not kind of still up in the air. Those things are set. It's happened. We receive the Spirit, His Spirit in us whenever we believe, and we are declared His children. Right, this is like the promise that Jesus told His disciples we saw a few weeks ago in John 14 as He looked at them the night before He was killed, and He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is the realization of that promise. As He sent His Spirit, we've been adopted, made His own, and that's not going to change already and secure. But as he wraps up in 17, verse 17, and begins to transition, notice all of the, the promises that we have that not only are we made children by his spirit, but we are made heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So what Paul is saying here, what the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying is that every single one of you who believe, who received his spirit, you're now children, but you're not only children. Everything that Christ has received, you will receive as well. You are co-heirs, and I'm giving it to you. All the hope of the resurrection and new life, all of that that you see in Jesus, you get it too. You are a co-heir. You get all of it, and it is secure. Provided one thing, and look at the very end of 17, what he says. And this is strange. He said, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's odd, isn't it? And it kind of strikes dissonance with some of the messages that we may hear in Christian churches today or on TV. Messages that will say that if you believe, God wants to alleviate your suffering. He wants to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. And depending on your faith, and you will get these things. Friends, I'm going to be honest. It's clear that that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible is absolutely crystal clear on is that if you are a son of God, you will suffer. You will walk forward. Now, why? Why is that? That's the way that God saw fit for us to live his, this life. Not only to live this life, but he saw that that was fit for him to live his. And whenever Jesus came, he didn't live a life free of pain and suffering. He was known as the suffering servant. He was a man of sorrows. If anyone experienced pain in this world, it was God. It's ever he came and he walked through that. And so for whatever reason, in the economy of God, he knows that the way to receive the crown is only through the cross. The way to get to glory is only through suffering. 
That whenever we experience pain in this world, whenever we experience it well, we are experiencing the same suffering in a sense that Christ did. We suffer with Him. And the only way for us to walk to glory is to go through the path of suffering, just like He did. Jesus walked first. We walk behind Him, but we do not walk alone. He's walked the path before us, but He's walking with us still. This is the hope that we have. And so Paul's writing this and telling him, yeah, your, your adoption is secure. Your salvation is done. It's, it's taken care of. But realize you're going to have to go through suffering in this life. And then he transitions now to the not yet in verses 18 through 25. Look at what he says then. You notice Paul, in almost the beginning of every one of his sentences, you see that word for, F-O-R, for. Paul is a radical, uh, logically guy, logical guy. He's connecting and building an argument. Everything that he's saying is building on what he says right before. So in verse 18, he's building on this fact that we will walk through suffering. And he tells them, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Now listen, I don't want to gloss over that verse because there has not been a verse in the Bible that's given me more hope in the midst of suffering than that one. It was a little over five years ago now that I got a call that my dad, who was 59, was mowing the yard and had a fatal heart attack and passed away before he got to the hospital. And I was in North Carolina and got on a plane, flew from North Carolina to Texas to Mississippi and then drove to Louisiana. Very efficient. And on the way there, my phone was turned off. I didn't know anyone on the plane. I was by myself. All I had was this book. And I just read Romans 8 over and over and over again. And as I read Romans 8 over and over again, I could not get beyond this verse. Because for the first time in my life, I experienced very real pain and very real sorrow. And as I felt that, I looked at the truth of what God was promising me here. And what he wasn't telling me was, hey, just don't feel the pain. But he was telling me the immensity of the pain that you feel right now, feel it because the glory that's to come is so much greater. And for the first time in my life, I began to long for that. I began to groan for that. Because up until that point, my life was pretty comfortable here. And I felt in that moment like I was on the island of misfit toys. There was something broken. And I could not wait for him to come and fix it. And what I saw here is the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. And for the first time, I had a tangible sense of what that glory was going to be like. The pain that I felt paled in comparison to the hope that God had promised. And so the truth is, as we look forward to what heaven will be like, the people who have the clearest picture of how great heaven will be are the people who have the clearest picture of how painful this world can be. Because we felt the suffering and the pain and brokenness. And we begin to look forward to the glory that's to be revealed to us. So don't move beyond that. Hold on to it. It is a remarkable promise as God is gently lifting up our eyes to say, I know it hurts. I've been there. But this is not the end of the story. There is unshakable hope that you have because the things that you experience now, I have overcome and you are a co-heir with me. 
And so you don't have to walk over these enemies. I've walked over them for you. I've gone before you. I've slayed them. And all of my victories are given to you. He is our David and we're the nation of Israel. As David slayed Goliath, that victory was counted to people who didn't fight at all. Friends, that's who we are. As Christ has gone before us, he stood before our greatest enemy, sin and death, and he defeated it. He conquered it. And his victory is then given to us who believe that we have this hope that nothing in this world can touch, that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. And then Paul continues, and he makes this weird connection, this weird analogy and comparison in verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul then transitions and begins to talk about creation in this world. He says that creation is actually looking forward as well and waiting for the same returning of Jesus, this eager longing. Why? Why would creation, mountains and trees and 38-degree mornings, why would creation be looking forward to this day? Paul continues, verse 20, because, for. He says, because creation was subjected to futility, to brokenness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So what Paul's saying is that creation actually has experienced the same kind of brokenness that we feel. This curse of sin wasn't just, didn't just fall on us, it fell on the entire world. He says, but the, the subject, what it was subjected to, this curse, we see even in Genesis 3.17, that man was cursed, that Satan was cursed, but creation itself was cursed. As God said that, told Adam, cursed is the ground because of you, Genesis 3.17 thorns and thistles now grow. And creation is cursed as a result of our sin, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. But doesn't stop there. There is hope. In 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so in this same hope that the children of God have, that Jesus will come and redeem them and make all things new, creation is looking the same way forward to that day when Jesus comes again and the curse will be lifted. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. That there is this curse that they feel, this groaning that creation feels itself. And listen, this gives us some understanding of what happens every time we see a hurricane come through central Florida. Every time we see a tsunami in East Asia, every time we see a wildfire sweep across California, friends, those are expressions of this reality that creation is groaning. That's not how it was designed to be. Something is broken, and creation is groaning and longing for that day. In fact, it says in 22 that it's groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Listen, we've had lots of babies here at Grace Claremont. It is our growth church strategy. Um, and we, and I've, I've had the opportunity with my wife to, to see what, what childbirth is like. So I've not gone through it, and I hate guys that begin to talk as though they understand what it's like. Listen, we ain't ever going to understand what it's like. But I think it's safe to say it's painful. I think that I can say that. And Paul makes the comparison here that creation, as it's groaning and longing for its redemption, he says that it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. And listen, as you walk through the hospital and you hear people screaming, there's a difference between the screams of childbirth and the screams of sorrow. One has hope and the other does not. That the, the, the pain of childbirth and those screams, they are leading to something that brings life. 
There is joy at the end of it. And Paul says this is the reality for everyone, for creation, in this already and not yet. That it's painful, remarkably painful, but there is hope at the end. There is life at the end. In verse 23, he transitions. He says, but not just creation. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Paul transitions and he says, okay, that's what's happening with creation. It's it's groaning. He said, but creation isn't alone. We're groaning along with it. And I think there's, there's not a better summary of what the Advent season is about apart from those words. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's what Advent is all about. As we acknowledge the brokenness still in this world, in between these two Advents, this already and not yet, there is still something broken. But there is hope, and we wait eagerly for that day. We wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. And so that's interesting, right? Paul, in verses 12 through 17, said, hey, you guys are children. You are adopted. But here he says we wait eagerly for adoption. And he's holding both of these up, saying, yes, you are already sons, but you are not yet home. You've been in court. The gavel has been dropped. You are declared a child of God. But right now you're in the car headed home. You're not there yet, waiting eagerly for this adoption as sons in between this already and this not yet. Paul's saying we groan inwardly with creation. We are groaning, longing, feeling the angst of this world. We're waiting for the day when we'll be fully adopted and redeemed, waiting for that not yet. And there's remarkable comfort in this song that, that we sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because who it is that we're praying to come The name there, Emmanuel, is God with us. We are praying for a God who isn't just sitting back watching all of this take place, seeing the brokenness of his creation. We are praying for a God to come who's already come once. He saw the brokenness of this world, and he didn't just step back and let it play out like a kid with a magnifying glass in an anthill. He stepped right in the middle of it. And he was born 2,000 years ago a baby. Listen, one of the beautiful things about having lots of babies around here is they give us a very clear picture of what that night was like. I think often we kind of overlook the babyhood of God. It is a very real thing. 2,000 years ago, people held God in their hands. It's unbelievable to think about. He screamed, he pooped, he was hungry. This was God entering into the brokenness of his creation. And then he didn't just sit there. He continued to grow, walking through the pain and suffering of this world, being tempted just as we are, walking forward. And then three years before he was killed, beginning his public ministry and starting to give us glimpses of what he will do one day. As he began to pull back the curse and say, look what I will one day bring fully. This is what I have the power and authority to do. That man who's sick over there, he's not sick anymore. That person who can't walk, he can now walk. The person who can't see, hey, put some mud on your eyes, you'll be able to see again. Lazarus, yeah, you were dead, just come out. 
This is what I have the authority to do. And one day, I'm pulling back the veil a little bit now to show you as I'm walking forward, and I will fully redeem you in the cross that I'm walking towards. But whenever I leave, one day I will come back and these little glimpses that you're seeing, I will bring them back in full. What you see in part now, one day you will see in full. This is the hope and the promise that we have of this Emmanuel, God with us, one who has tasted it, one who has felt it, one who's felt it even stronger than we have. There's so much joy and comfort in that truth. Whenever we feel pain, we have a God who's felt it more, who comes alongside us and says, I know, I've been there, and I feel it, and I promise one day I'll come and I'll take it away. But now we live in this already and this not yet as we walk forward in hope, knowing that one day he will come and do that as God uses the pain and suffering in this world as a megaphone to the world around us of the hope that we have. And this Emmanuel, this God with us, is the only one who can do what it is that, that we need in a Savior. Right? I want someone who has the power to save me from my sin and to redeem me completely. And Jesus can do that because he's God. But I also want someone who's able to understand the pain that I felt and the temptation that I've walked through and can deal with me gently in an understanding way. And Jesus can do that because he's a man. See, if he'd been just God, I could have trusted him, but I could have never come close to him without being afraid. If he'd been just a man, I could have loved him, but I could have never had confidence that he'd be able to take away my sin. But he is the God-man, able to deliver me and able to feel with me. The power and sympathy of God meet in Jesus Christ. In him, we can both trust and not be afraid. J.C. Ryle, an old uh, minister in the 1800s put it this way. He said, I find a deep mine of comfort in this thought that Jesus is perfect man, no less than perfect God. He in whom I'm told by scripture to trust is not only a great high priest, but a feeling high priest. He's not only a powerful savior, but he's a sympathizing savior. He's not only the son of man mighty to save, but he is the son of man able to feel. This is who we worship, a God who stepped into this mess with us who understands it, who tasted our sadness whenever he came the first time, and he will come again to end it. He walked through this broken and cursed world. And we live now in this reality of this already and not yet. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come and take your people home. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Paul ends this section then in Romans 8 by reminding us that while we groan, we have hope. He says that in this hope we were saved. A hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul's saying these promises that I've given you, you can't see them. But we hope for them. And one of the things that I think is unhelpful is I think we don't quite have an understanding of what biblical hope is. It's not just crossing our fingers like when we say, man, I hope Mississippi State wins today. That's not the case, because I'll be honest, that you get let down often if you hope for that. <laughs> Biblical hope is something different. Biblical hope is hearing the promises of God. We cannot see them, but we have complete assurance that he will bring them about based on his track record. Knowing that he has always been faithful and he will never break a promise. That this God who stands above the curse of sin has told us that he has defeated it and one day he's coming again to end it entirely and we hope in that with a rock 
solid assurance, unwavering. That's what biblical hope is. And so we hope for what we do not see, this promise of what God has told us. And as we look once again at this Christmas hymn, we see in every name of Jesus this filled with boundless hope as we pray for him to come. As Emmanuel, he is the God-man that came to earth to taste our sadness and will one day come again to end our sadness. As we pray, O come thou dayspring, as the dayspring, this Jesus is the first light of God's kingdom breaking into the darkness of this world. As the true prophet, Christ is the word made flesh, bringing to us the message of God that's the very foundation of our hope and salvation. As the true priest, he's come at last to bring us close to the heart of God while we were once far off, tearing the veil so that we can now boldly approach the throne of grace. As the true king, he's coming again to bring his kingdom fully here and end all of our suffering and make all things sad come untrue. The Bible ends with this very thought, actually, in Revelation 22. This is how the whole message is summed up. John writes, he says, He who testifies these things, talking about Jesus, He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. That's the ending note of the Bible. So should we not, as Christians, carry that spirit in our hearts every day? Or do we get so comfortable in this world that we lower our eyes from heaven and we look around trying to find comfort here? God is saying, lift your eyes. Feel the brokenness. That groan that you feel in your soul is right, but it will not last. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is our hope in this already but not yet life. As we are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly. Praying that once again our Emmanuel would come. God with us and ransom us, freeing us from our exile and bringing us home. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.